founders that come up with a really good plan, set of assumptions and say, you know, this is sort of the way that we're going to get to this point. Uh, you know, this is the way we're going to get to like FedEx, except entirely autonomous. We can't do that tomorrow, but you know, here's a first step. And like, this is what that future might look like and how we get there. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Because, see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like, you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Welcome back to Polymathic Audio. We have Sahil Lavingia with us, the founder and CEO of Gumroad. Uh, I think that he's a fascinating person and a use case for how media and e-commerce have come to join forces in the last five to seven years. Um, we're going to hear a little bit about, little bit about what he's built, um, his transition away from the traditional VC-backed company into one that's more concerned with profits and, and bootstrapped growth. There's a lot to learn from him, and I look forward to getting into a little bit of that here. What's uh, what's new? What's new in your world? What's new in my world? Just just cranking, uh, building, building. I'm raising a tiny fund. Uh, that's a kind of a new project for me. But on the Gumroad side, we're 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 sort of gearing up to launch this this new set of product features called memberships, which is going to sort of put us into the uh, the arena with with Patreon in in the next uh, next couple months. So pretty excited about that. Congratulations! Tell me, tell me a little bit more about this uh, this fund that you're raising. Yeah, so like a lot of things, kind of just came out of the blue uh, after the George Floyd stuff, and trying to you know there was that that uh, the sort of the meme make the hire or 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 wire the check hire or wire, uh, and I was like, I can do, I can actually do both of those things. Uh, so I started doing doing that, and the I made a couple hires, but. The wiring stuff is, is a little bit more public. So I tweeted about it. I said, you know, I've made some investments. I'd like to invest in more black founders effectively. And then ended up investing in, I think so far, six 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 black founders in the last month or so. Um, Amazing. One non-black founder uh, as well. Um, yeah, just, you know, it turns out, you know, the nice thing about having a big Twitter audience, uh, you know, most VCs abhor inbound. Uh and uh, you know, there's sort of the warm introductions thing that that sort of that sort of is a is a big sort of part of that industry sort of you know running. Uh, and so when you can when you kind of avoid that when you do something different, you can get a lot of interest. So I did that. Met a bunch of awesome companies, even companies that you know, had people and founders I'd known of, but had you know, like had never made the connection. Uh, it was kind of like a, a, a sort of a beacon for for a lot of folks, and so. Yeah, I basically made a bunch of investments. So I'm not a professional investor or, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I don't have a ton of like disposable income. And so I basically ran out of, out of money. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I'd done maybe like, I sort of doubled the total amount of investments I'd ever done in the last uh, month or so. So, so I, you know, I, I started, a, a few of them were looking for more capital. I sort of wrote a little blurb on each one and sent them to a few investors that I, I, I like a lot. One of them was Naval and he replied being like, 
I, you know, if you have you thought about raising a fund, I'd rather just give you money and pay you to invest that capital sort of on my behalf, right? Which is effectively what a what a fund does uh, for its LPs. And so I said, no, never never considered doing that. It sounds painful and time consuming. Uh, but Angelus has this new product called Rolling Funds, which is effectively kind of a combination between a traditional venture fund and like an SPV or kind of like a quarterly syndicate almost, um, which sort of lowers the bar quite a bit, allows me to talk about raising a fund, which most funds can't even do, uh, which is, you know, very sort of fits into my vision of sort of democratizing things for people. And so, yeah, just three, three weeks ago, I started raising a fund. I'm at $450,000 a quarter committed so far. Uh, from a bunch of VCs, angels, operators, founders, um, really just, you know, tons of different folks. uh, uh, And so, yeah, hope to start investing pretty, pretty shortly, not just in black founders, but that will remain a focus. I think 40% of the total investments I've done now are are black founders. So I want to keep that ratio, but just, you know, early, as early as as early as possible, um, you know, uh, in, in sort of founders building interesting stuff, uh, solving really boring problems in, in less boring ways. So what are you looking for in these founders? Like what types of industries are you looking at? Um, are you going to take active roles in any of these investments? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I, I, I want to take as much of a passive role as I can. I think a lot of investors pitch the value add quote unquote part of the, of their, of their sort of, uh, value add, I guess, instead of just the money. Right. Uh, and I just think, I don't know, a lot of founders, they just, they, they know, they know what they want to do. They want some feedback on it, but uh, you know, a lot of the founders I talk to, they, they just want the money and they want to get back to work. And so I think that's going to be a pretty core part of the way that I pitch this thing is I want to write hundred thousand dollar checks. I want to get answers to people within, you know, three or four days. Uh, I want to make it as easy as possible. And I want to give people clarity, just similar to the way that I run Gumroad. Like I just, I really believe in like, you know, I'm a big Notion fan. I, I believe in kind of documenting as much as, as much as possible about my own thought process, and people can kind of see that without talking to me. Uh, and so they kind of, uh, hopefully, a lot of people will know if they're a good fit or not even before they talk to me, which might help a little bit with the inbound flood problem. Uh, but yeah, I'm just looking, you know, space wise. I'm looking for. I'm really open to anything. I think so many of the interesting companies that have been built, I would have never thought about, but you know, founders kind of go off into the wilderness and then find some interesting frontier and sort of bring it back and say, Hey, I like sailed a boat over there and I found this treasure, uh, that no one knows about. Uh, but I, you know, I don't have enough capital to actually sort of solve the problem completely. Um, and it's sort of the founder's job, I think to, to educate the investor on this opportunity because investors, you know, like Uber or Postmates that, that just went down recently. I think investors looked at that opportunity that the food delivery has been going on since like, the internet began, right? Like in 2000, uh, it was a big, big part of the, the, the boom and bust of the sort of the 2000 cycle. And it's just, I think founders sort of need to sort of figure out the, the it's easy. The 10 year vision, I actually think is, is not that hard. It's easy to say, you know, in 50 years from now, we're going to, we're all going to be driving electric cars, right? Like that's sort of a, we're either that, either that or we're screwed. <laughs> uh, I think the hard part is, 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 is putting together sort of like the, the, okay, that's great. But like, what do we do in, you know, to this year what do we do tomorrow and how do we get to that point um that that's that's stuff the really the really hard stuff so i think founders that come up with a really good plan set of assumptions and say you know this is sort of the way that we're going to get to this point uh you know this is the way we're going to get to like fedex except entirely autonomous we can't do that tomorrow but you know here's a first step and like this is what that future might look like and how we get there um i think 
uh, is, is really, that's, that's really what compels me the most. It's, it's selfish. It's like, I want to learn, you know, and the more I can learn from a meeting with someone, like the more likely they're, they're sort of intimately familiar with the space and are going to be able to solve the problem because they just know more, they care more, they read books about this stuff that most people won't do. Um, and they're willing to solve the problem. I think a lot of people, like, I think of starting companies and, and being successful relatively probabilistically. Like if there's 50 competitors, there's sort of statistically a 2% chance that you win the market. Uh, winning the market, meaning you get sort of like 90 plus percent market share. Uh, and so the best way to sort of, you know, put the odds in your favor is just like pick a harder problem, <laughs> pick a more bo- boring problem that you know, very few people actually want to solve. It's a huge opportunity like Stripe when they started, you know, like if you were like, yeah, you're going to spend most of your time talking to banks, trying to, trying to like and regulators, trying to make this thing easy. There are a lot of founders that saw that opportunity. You just were like, no, thanks. Right. Uh, there's a joke in the, and the startup ecosystem, like no one, no one starts two payments companies <laughs> uh, because you start one. You even if you're successful, there's only one person I've ever met who started two payments companies, Max Lovgen from PayPal. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's just you don't really do it twice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's a huge. Like I love, yeah, and that that's you know, what as a founder and a, as an investor, sort of the incentives are a little different. But I would love to back people who are you know solving really hard problems that are pretty boring on a day-to-day basis. And then I can just jump in on the interesting stuff and help out where I can. So that's kind of how I think about it, but you know, work in progress. I don't, I don't really know where this thing, where this thing will end up. You personally, like what, what problems are striking to you? And I think you made a very salient point about the in-between. We often think about the future. We think about now, but we don't think about the path to it. Uh, Like what problems in that, that white space are you most interested in right now? Yeah, right now specifically, I'm really interested in the supply chain. Uh, I think, as you you know, yeah, like the 10 year, I can see a future in which you know someone can get can have an idea and sell to the entire world, and shipping can happen, and all these things can just happen. Elliot kind of pitched that a little too early, potentially, uh, and but everyone you know everyone can kind of believe in that right uh, that future. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in like, what are the components of making that happen? Cause it's probably hundreds, if not thousands of companies, you know, solving problems that make that transition easier. Like I just invested in a company, Sote, that is basically Flexport for Africa. And they were just sort of like very intimately familiar with like how trade works in Africa and all the sort of like nuances and history of colonialism and how, how these things were set up. And, and, uh, and that's a, that's sort of an essential part, you know, uh, you can't just make it easy to give for, for folks to give money to each other. You also have to make it possible for like goods to, to be traded. That's a sort of significant part of democratization. And, and that's the through line for me is democratization. I think everything that I've built, everything that I'm interested in is always just, I believe in the, in sort of people in general being good people. And so giving them more tools, making things cheaper, making things, things more accessible, you know, taking something that takes five days, making it take one day, like all those things, like I, I believe, believe quite strongly in like this sort of lowering of friction, um, as you know, and it, I think people, people want to do things. Those things have, have sort of been the same for thousands of years. We want to like lose weight, spend time with family, you know, like be healthy, eat good food, travel, see some cool stuff, get some dopamine hits along the way. And, and that's probably <laughs> going to be the same in a thousand years. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, just sort of like the boring basic industries, like energy, housing, transportation, like if you look at Airbnb and Uber, maybe like two of the largest consumer hits in the last few years or decade. Like, I mean, those aren't insane ideas, right? You were getting in a cab 10 years ago. You were staying at a hotel 10 years ago. It's just sort of like, it's more liquid. It's more people can do it. 
it's cheaper, it's faster, it's more, you know, it's, it's, it's lower friction. Um, and, and so I'm, yeah, I'm really interesting, interested in, in, in those sorts of things. So for me, I feel like e-commerce is at the forefront of a lot of those discussions, right? Like mm-hmm. the, finding ways to digitize the, the economy is my chief concern, whether, whether it's the church or school or the mom and pop retailer that is run on QuickBooks and guesswork. You know, like I, 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 I found uh, that I've respected your work because in some ways you're trying to accomplish the same goal. So tell me a little bit more about like your vision of Gumroad in the future and like where you take, where you plan on taking it moving forward. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Like a lot of this stuff, the face of all of these other changes that uh, are, is e-commerce. It's, it's people transacting uh, in the digital economy, uh, you know, just like, you know, instead of booking a, flight with a travel agent or something 10 years ago, you now just go online and do it. Uh, or maybe not now this year, but next year, <laughs> hopefully. Um, yeah, the way, the way I look at Gumroad is, is, is similar. It's, 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 it's really like looking at like, for example, the comp that I use is Harvard, which is funny because now they're kind of in the news for this, <laughs> this thing where they, they went all zoom, but they're, they're charging the same fee. Uh, and I'm sure they will be able to fill the seats, uh, the, the virtual seats regardless, but, um, easy to dunk on. But yeah, you know, the way I think about Gumroad is like, I want to empower any, anyone that is creative, any creator, any teacher, any artist, uh, to sort of sell their creativity directly to their audience, typically by, you know, selling and soon selling memberships, but currently selling digital products, ebooks, courses, films, documentaries, stand up specials, like all sorts of really anything that you make with your computer. We would just want to make it really easy for people to sell directly to their audiences, take 90, 95% of the, of the sort of the, the proceeds and, and kind of, you know, focus on just making, making more stuff. Um, and, and yeah, the big, the big, the big change for us right now is, is launching the membership stuff. Cause I think one of the big mistakes we made is it's, is in the early days, we were so focused on the, on the sort of the URL, the product, making that really easy and simple. Um, we had this vision of, you know, social media was going to connect every creator directly to their audience and they wouldn't have to work with their label to sell music and their publisher to sell a book. And so we really focused on the product, but I think, I think one of the things we didn't see is actually when you when you create a sort of a direct relationship from creator to audience, like they actually just want to support the creator. They might not even care what they're selling or like the sort of financial contract of of that relationship. Like the even buying an album or or going to a show was kind of just like, oh, this is what I have to do to support this person potentially. I can go listen to their music for free online if I really wanted to on YouTube or whatever. And so I think memberships and, and centering the creator is is sort of a really important transition. And then we're going to do that. And then in the next six months or year or so, we're going to really focus on the educational component, uh, synchronous live stream classes, uh, video courses, really, uh, really making it possible for people to have like a more rich currently. It's sort of a one way thing. You make a product, you sell it, even with memberships, you're kind of delivering content. And then people you, with a newsletter, you're just sort of delivering content and then people read it. Right. Um, and of course you have other forms and a lot of that stuff lives on Twitter and sort of the back and forth and the conversations kind of live there and the community aspect, but I think bringing more of that into Gummer, that's effectively what is really valuable about a university, right? You're not really paying for this sort of unique co- content that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Uh, certainly you can find some of the best stuff online for free on YouTube. It's really about the community, the sort of the credentialism, potentially the networking, the social proof, the, the motivation, the peer pressure, um, all of those sorts of things that I think will sort of start living online as well over the next couple of years uh, and all get digi- digitized. Um, 
over. And, and so, you know, we want to kind of be a part of that shift. I really like that. And it's funny because I think my first interaction with Gumroad was a little bit late. Um, I've been in the independent creator space not not very long. I mean, 2PM has only been monetized for about two and a half years now. My first interaction with Gumroad was probably Ed Lattimore mm-hmm. and watching watching what he built. And you know, he was in Pittsburgh when I was in Pittsburgh at the time doing some work. And we you know we met over coffee once, and you know it was just like, man, you're you're really building a future on a platform that I've never really heard of before. Uh, Given that you're still working on the name recognition, which you deserve a lot more of, like, have you thought about how to grow that? Yeah. Is, um, is, the, Patreon, is the Patreon competitive move sort of a step in that direction, I guess? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I'm super jealous of Substack, for example. They seem to be killing it on the name recognition front, uh, even though Gumroad's probably, you know, bigger in volume obviously a lot older too, but yeah, uh, totally. I mean, the, 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 the thing that we did really well with Gumroad, I think is we built a great product. I think the thing that we did really badly, uh, in the early days was to, to build that name recognition. I was so anti-hype that I, I did almost none of that. Um, and I'm sort of repenting for it now. I'm kind of going all in on the, on the marketing strategy and, and definitely the, 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 there's, there's sort of two core insights I think I pulled from, from, from sort of Patreon and Substack success recently. One is you're really fighting for that URL. You're really fighting for that pin tweet, right? Uh, there's sort of the real estate idea. Uh, you know, if you digitize the economy, you did, you know, land turns into in, sort of that real estate turn goes online and the equivalent of having like a really good, uh, you know, place in the mall is kind of like being the, the pin tweet or the URL in someone's in someone's you know Twitter profile or Instagram account, right? And I think Gumroad, when you're selling a single product, again that transition from product to creator, when you're selling products, like there's not that space for it. You know, Ed Lattimore, for example, will be tweeting about the the products that he might be selling as he's selling them as he launches them, et cetera, on Gumroad, but he's not really delivering any of that content uh, on Twitter, right? So you don't see any of that in the sort of places where, where people kind of typically hang out and build that net, that name recognition. I think that's a big component is sort of really pivoting, you know, on Substack. it's about the newsletter. It's about the person really, uh, Patreon similar. And so that's a big change. Uh, and definitely certainly why, why a big part of why we're doing it. And I think the other, the other reason is you're, you're creating content, public free content all the time on these platforms, uh, which, which, you know, if you're, if you think about Gumroad, basically you would only hear about Gumroad if someone's selling an ebook, which how often does someone sell an ebook? Maybe once every six months. Right. And so in terms of marketing, you it takes an insanely long time to build a brand. Whereas with Patreon or Substack, you're, you can be writing a post every single day. Right. So you're, you're able to sort of build that name recognition much, much, much faster. Uh, and I would say the, the other thing is, uh, is is the is on the consumer side you can read that content and get value from it for free all the time. Whereas with Gumroad you'd have to go through the conversion rate of buying the whole product um, and and consuming the product to really have any you know sort of empathy and any sort of recognition for the for the Gumroad brand itself. Which you know the conversion rate even for Gumroad is incredibly high for e-commerce. Uh, it's not nearly as high as you know clicking a, a blog post and reading the thing, right? And so that's why we we pushed out posts last year and we're already seeing more posts be created per day than products which makes sense obviously like you it's a lot easier to post than but you know for nine years gummer's nine years old so like nine years of inertia on products it took a month and a half i think for when we launched posts for posts to overtake products as like a feature so 
Um, so those are some of the sort of, yeah, the strategic elements of really, really creating that, that name recognition and Patreon, I think specifically did really well because it's an ongoing thing. And so at the end of every viral Twitter, uh, thread, or, you know, at the end of every YouTube video, you can sort of say, Hey, by the way, support me on Patreon, uh, and, and Gumroad, because you were selling these one-off kind of products, it didn't really, uh, go into that flow, um, as well, you know? Um, you'd get the one YouTube video that was dedicated to the launch of the product. And then that's, that's all you'd ever see. Um, and so, yeah, there's a a lot of learnings we had around, around marketing and distribution, but I really think about it. Like I had a tweet about this, that about first time founders care about product, uh, second time founders care about distribution. I think big part of that is because people realize, you know, you can build the best thing in the world, but if no one knows about it, you know, it's, it's not that sort of build it and they will come strategy that doesn't really pan out. You have to really like find a way to get the audience in front of you um, and, and listening. Uh, and so I'm sort of repenting for that. And I, I think the, I, I noticed that when I wrote that, that uh, blog post effectively on, on the Gumroad journey and, and how much traction it got 700, 800,000 people read it. And I was like, Oh, I had no idea that like people, if I just talked about sort of the, the sort of like the, the, the B sides, you know, kind of, uh, equivalent of of the startup journey like that would actually gain a lot of traction and and build the main gumroad brand as a as a side effect and so that's kind of how we're we're thinking about it now it's like what are all the things that are sort of the b-sides of the creator story that we can enable them to talk about and then they they can still sell those products but you know getting them into that gumroad ecosystem is is such a huge part of that do you ever this is really interesting to me because one of my aspirations is to write or to have the reason to write a book about the industry that i work in or my involvement in the industry, um, I would say one of the, with your traditional product offering, one of the barriers to entry is who's going to write a book or who's going to write something that long that would require Gumroad as the source of uh, transaction. Um, do you ever talk with creators that have pipelines of people that want to write like that? I guess what comes to mind is like David Peril, right? Like, do you ever have conversations with him about his writing school? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, we do. I mean, there, there is definitely a pipeline of those people, but it is, uh, it is quite small uh, because you basically have, you have to find the people who want to, to sort of have reached the activation of energy of like, I, yes, I want to write a book, which is incredibly high, but aren't at the level where they're like, I want to, I want to start a business around this thing. It's like this weird middle ground, right? Like there's sort of like the, the lowest hanging fruit is like you start a newsletter, a free newsletter, or you start tweeting. That's sort of like the lowest, right? And then maybe a newsletter is above that. And then, um, and then like quite far above that is like writing a whole book and selling that book. And then not that much above that is starting a business. So it's like this weird, like prices, right? Dynamic where you want to find people right below the, 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 the sort of like the, the next level, but you know, in your little band. Um, and so, yeah, we do have those conversations, but I think you're totally correct. Like it ends up being like a pretty narrow band. And I talk about in that post, like the, the market you're in is going to determine most of your growth. And I think that's a big mistake that we made in the Gumroad journey that we're correcting now is, is the, the activation energy. Um, we thought about it, you know, super low because we're like, Oh, you don't have to create a Shopify account to start selling and all these sorts of things. But I think we, we missed the fact that like, that Shopify account is happening so late in a creator's life cycle. Like to get to that point where you need that, 
you've built a brand, you might have an email list, you might have done all of these things already, you might have done a Kickstarter. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that we just sort of like started so late in the funnel, but we pitched ourselves as incredibly early in the funnel. So I think this, the answer is now, let's just move up the funnel. Like what do people do before they're ready to sell a book on Gumroad? And then like, let's go do that. And, and we've seen that play out, you know, outside of Gumroad, we'll see someone, uh, you know, start a newsletter and then write for a year and then just basically effectively package it up, sell it on Gumroad and do really, really, really well. And so it's like, okay, well, we should just make that part that they were doing ahead of, of Gumroad part of, part of the Gumroad, you know, the sort of the Gumroad product suite. Really interesting. You don't feel like that path is changing at all. Like I feel as it relates to what, what, you know, I've worked on with 2PM, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I went from newsletter to paid membership within two years. I, I've written probably 400 essays in that time. In that in the last four years, um, and at some point, I've probably gotten a dozen requests to convert those writings into a book form. Um, given that the majority of folks on Substack are following that path at this point, don't you see like a shorter path between the newsletter world and the book writing world now? Um, how that, like yeah? Explain a little bit more. Like what what do you see as yeah. a shorter path potentially? So you know, I'm a part of a uh, a group called Type House, which obviously is a play on the it's a play on the TikTok sort of <laughs> hype house format, uh, and it's you know uh, it's you know Molina, it's Nathan Bashes, it's uh, Jacob Connolly, like a lot of folks that are prolific on Substack, mm-hmm. and then a handful of us that 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 have built other platforms, and they are prolific writers at this point. And at some point, I see a lot of them becoming the types of writers that you would benefit greatly from through Gumroad, but a lot earlier than you would probably think because they're writing so much so frequently. Mm -hmm. So basically, like instead of saying, oh, you need to like package it up into a book, there's kind of like a new format um, or kind of a new model of, of sort of like something that you can package up that's more bundled than like a, you know, a newsletter. Um, but it doesn't require like the sort of same sort of like level of editing and all that kind of stuff that a, typically a book needs. Well, not necessarily. I'm saying that, you know, for instance, uh, let's say I wanted to bundle up my 100 member essays over <laughs> the last two and a half years, uh, re edit them, you know, build them into chapters, so on and so forth. Like that would be my first book project. Mm-hmm. I would write the intro. I would organize the format, blah, 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 blah. What I'm saying is there are other folks that are essentially business writers at this point that would be incredibly successful mm-hmm. as Gumroad users. Yeah. Just by packaging or rewriting the things that they've written already mm-hmm. into longer for, into longer form white, white papers or books altogether. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I think that's reasonable. I mean, like we have like the, you know, uh, Wait But Why is one of them who does that effectively with his blog posts. He sells them all on Gumroad or like Drill, the tw- this, this ironic Twitter account. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I, I have this like uh, fear almost, I think of like relying on any sales or any direct marketing, like all the growth we do is organic. And so I think it's just part of like what I need to get over is is sort of, 
build a a team that is focused on sort of like the finding those frontiers instead of waiting for them to happen. But I also like spent so long doing it this way and it's finally working. We're finally growing at like a, you know, a hundred percent year over year rate, uh, even though it took nine years to get here that it's like, maybe we just keep doing this and then, you know, it, yeah, it will take way longer, but like, it'll allow for these sort of like organic use cases to develop. So there's always a tension. I think, um, I think that's why why I'm kind of excited about the membership stuff for us is hopefully it will allow more of these use cases to to play out within our ecosystem so we can kind of just learn from like our own internal data instead of just, you know, see what people are doing um, and make it possible for people to say, hey, you know, we may, we have a UI now that just says, you know, you like click, click, you know, all the all the posts that you want in your book and, you know, hit a button and we'll turn it into a, a book for you, right? Um, and it's, yeah. you know, I'm also really interested in like Notion I've been spending a ton of time in Notion and I'm like, this is effectively better than a book because you're basically paying for access to an intranet effectively. And so instead of a book, which is kind of this like linear thing, you can write like, you know, you can have a post and like those, you know, multiple times within the post, you can like click something and it'll take you to more on that topic. And that, you know, like you're like, I think the, 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 we, we've kind of like, there's that interesting transition uh, that people talk about of like, there's like three steps of, of offline to, to online. There's like, there's offline and then there's like the online version of offline and then there's the online version of online. Right. And so like everyone needs that sort of like the, the sort of like the, 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 the thing that gets people online, which is like, this is just what you're doing now, except, you know, you can take payments online or something like that. Right. So it's like buying an ebook, right. You're effectively doing the same thing. Um, But I think when everyone gets online and is comfortable with all of these new, sort of actions and mental models and metaphors and things like that. I think the consumption experience will look fundamentally different in five to 10 years. Like I think Gumroad is going to look much more like a YouTube or a TikTok even, where you're sort of, there's payments and there's content, but it's not like you pay for an ebook, right? You're going to like pay for access to something. And then you're going to have like a portal into this world that might look like a Figma design file or something, right? Where you can kind of like click through this entire ecosystem of, you know, cause when you're, you're kind of forced to think in this very old school model, um, which, you know, was invented a long time ago. Um, and, and I, you know, with the internet, I just like, I don't know if like a book is probably a book is great. Like I'm writing a book. I think it'll, it'll, it'll it, I, I still love books. I still love reading books, but I think there's going to be a lot more, uh, formats, right? Currently there's like videos, there's books, uh, and there's like audio, uh, what you're listening to right now. Uh, and I just think there's going to be a hybrid, hybrid formats that combine like video and audio. And you're starting to see that play out a little bit, um, even with the sort of the rise of Clubhouse and all these kind of like new social networks that are coming about. But I just think there's so much room for how you learn and how you consume content um, and how you network and how you have like that relationship between student and teacher that I think it's just going to be, you know, even, even Clubhouse with their sort of idea of like a podcast, but then you can invite people up in real time. Like there's, there's so much to be done here. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe you have to pay money to be one of the people who's allowed to be invited up and, and stuff like that. Like the, the there's all these tiers that are going to exist over time, like discord sort of pioneered roles and, you know, and Patreon kind of combined roles with payments. And there's just going to be so much innovation. It's, it's so early, right? Like you mentioned, you started monetizing this thing like two and a half years ago or so. Gumroad's been around for a while, but we've only really gotten to like any sense of name recognition in the last couple of years. Uh, and so it's just so early. Like I'm, that's what I'm, I'm excited to be in this space is like, as long as I can stay alive, like, and, and like, it's going to be awesome because it's just such a good, it's such a good seat 
right? It's like, it's like having courtside seats to this amazing uh, industry, which is really, in my opinion, the forefront, as you mentioned, it's kind of the forefront of all these other things because it's the face of all these things. You can change supply chain, you can change transportation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like ultimately the user experience is, is sort of like, is the, is the thing, you know, that, that, that sort of everyone sees. And so being, being part of that is just super cool. It gives you a lot of really interesting point of view and perspective and interesting conversations that come out of that. I, I think you made some really salient points there and I want to sort of shift gears a little bit. Let's sure. talk about content creation uh, with the time that we have left because you have done a wonderful job with Twitter and I think it deserves a ton of credit because I think the misconception of Twitter is that it's easy. People don't understand how difficult it is to strike a chord consistently with an audience. And you've done a wonderful job of doing that. Tell me more about your strategy in that respect. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I joke that it's a little bit like uh, when you see like a modern art painting, you're like, I could do that because it's like five strokes and a circle or something like that. And then you ever try doing that and you're like, oh, wow, it's way harder. Like I don't understand, like your brain, like the muscle memory just isn't there to, to do that. Uh, and I think Twitter is incredibly uh, similar. Like it seems simple and there's so little there. Like you see like, thir- you know, 13 words in a row. But so there's so much happening under the surface. Like there's so many things being triggered in your, in your sort of like internal state when you read, when you read something, it's like reading a poem or something like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, my strategy is, is, is first and foremost, like I want to be entertaining. I think that's a big thing that people miss is like, I really want to, I think, especially w- with the world, the way it is, like, I think it's such an important part um, of all content that's created to be entertaining, to be sort of like almost a form of escapism. So entertainment is number one. Number two is, uh, is inspiration. Like I want to inspire people because I really believe that like when I talk to founders, like a lot of the stuff that gets people hung up is just people that they give up or they don't, they don't, they feel like they can't do it. Um, and it's a lot more accessible. I think if people start, they'll sort of realize over time, like, Oh, you can like learn the answers to all these questions. You don't have to know everything out of the gate. Uh, and then the third one is, is the educational piece is the advice and stuff like that, you know, that's important, but I think it should be wrapped in layers of inspiration and, and, uh, and entertainment. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's a big part. I think I also really try to make it general. Uh, I know sometimes people don't like that. They call it kind of the fortune cookie thing, but I do think like one, I'm, I'm a little scared of like saying something too specific to something, uh, cause everything's so tense right now. It's, it's hard to talk about topics sort of like specifically sometimes. So I try to abstract it out a little bit, but I, I also think like when something's true, it should be generalizable, right? Like if you can, like, for example, like the other day I had a tweet, if you want less competition, pick a harder problem. And that was, that came about because I was thinking about all these gumroad competitors that were popping up. And I was like, it's my fault because I didn't pick that hard of a problem. Like we don't really have a strong moat. And so it's my, it's my fault. And I was, as I was raising this, this, this fund, uh, I was talking to, to founders and I, I, I noticed a similar thing where like the, the founders that attracted me the most were the people who were solving really hard problems because they wouldn't have a lot of competition. And I, and I started thinking about science fiction writing and all these different topics of mine, uh, in, on my mind. And, and I was like, Oh, the th- there's a theme here, which is like, basically you want to minimize as much competition as possible. And the only way to do that is to just do harder things, right? Like you, if you want to start running marathons, like guess what? Most people don't do that. Like you're, you're, you're the easiest way to, it's a riff on Naval's like, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to be the, the only at something than the best, you know, the best way to be the best at something is to be the only at something. Right. Uh, 
it's kind of that idea. Um, and so that's, that's, that's some of my strategy. I also think like, you just have to live your life. I think a lot of folks, like they really want the, the, I don't know, the, the audience or the, the virality or something like that. But ultimately you have to be doing interesting things. And that's where like the interesting ideas come from. Like if I wasn't thinking about, oh man, like building this company and nine years in still having all this competition that's sprouting up all the time and, you know, doing these, these things day, day to day, like I would never have these ideas. Um, the ideas are easy to replicate. Like once you see a tweet, you're like, oh yeah, I can rephrase that. Like that's interesting. Uh, but coming up with the idea itself, I think is just comes from living, living your life. And I, I noticed that with science fiction writers, like some of the best writers that I, I'm a fan of are not the best writers. Like, they're, like I, I wouldn't say I'm a great writer in terms of like my skill as a, as a writer. Uh, but I have an interesting life. I do a lot of weird, interesting things that most people don't do. And that allows me to kind of like connect topics and explore things in a way that, that most people don't. And that is what makes me interesting. It's not like my, you know, lexicon or something that, that sets me apart. Uh, so yeah. One of the things that I, I most value about your tweets is that I think that you simplify things really well. You're very succinct in your message. And it's something that I'm actually working on because I tend to do the opposite. I'm writing short essays with my tweets. <laughs> like I'm, I'm probably maxing out every maxing out every character every single time because I'm trying to whittle down very complex thoughts into 220 characters. You're doing that with much much less, which I think is a skill that translates well to traditional writing. Congratulations for that. Um, it's sort of this last segment. Uh, I want to switch gears one more time, like. What questions do you have for me? Like, what are, what can I help with? Uh, what am I not seeing? You know, um, yeah. whether it's e-commerce, media, anything like what's, what, what, what am I missing? Yeah. I mean, so I, I would just to bounce off your last thought. I think that's true. I think part of it is you have to be, I think I'm, I'm okay being wrong. Like uh, Oscar Wilde, I think has that quote, like everything popular is wrong. And I think that's, it's true. Like you have to be okay losing the nuance a little bit. Like you have to understand that Twitter is a platform that sort of incentivizes certain behavior and, and sort of doesn't others. And you just have to be comfortable with being misinterpreted to a, to a degree. Like, of course there are exceptions to everything I say, and you just kind of have to get over that fact. I think a little bit, if you want to, to kind of be successful, quote unquote on Twitter in that way. Um, I think in terms of yeah, what I'm interested to learn from you is like, I think you're, depth in e-commerce and specifically in like the, the, the D to C e-commerce is like really interesting to me. And I think the, the thing that I, especially as like a person raising, raising a fund and talking to founders and stuff now is, is there's just so many, it's so easy to get started. It's so easy to come up with a brand and an idea and even get someone to help manufacture it and everything like that. There's all these companies that kind of do that. Um, and I'm, I'm just really interested in like where people fail, right? Everyone has an amazing idea and is like, look, we're going to execute this thing and it's going to be massive. And it's so obvious because it's so broken currently. And, you know, whether that be in beauty or, 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 or health, fitness, wellness, all these things. And I'm always, I'm, I'm like, but it's not that easy <laughs> because statistically it's not like clearly most thing most people fail somewhere along the way. They never get to that crazy outcome that everyone thinks they're going to get to at the beginning. So I'm curious, like, why is that? Where, where do you see it? Especially related to even with the newsletter kind of stuff, which is a, in my eyes, almost like a subset of D to C. 
as someone who benefits from sort of this D2C and newsletter thing working, I'm always incredibly skeptical because I do think it's really hard to build one, get to scale and have people pay you consistently for a long period of time. I'm curious where, yeah, where sort of your head is at on like, where do people fail? Why is it so difficult? And then why do people think it's not? Like, why are people so convinced that in certain verticals, it's like, this is so clearly the future. Everyone's going to have a newsletter. I I think to start that answer, it's really simple. And I think that you've learned this as well as anyone in this space. Uh, I think that people originally set out on these plans to build these brands, thinking that it was going to be a lot easier than it was. And one of the mechanisms that enables that behavior and that that sort of attitude is the overfunding of a lot of these brands. Uh, listen, I think that retail, building anything from scratch is very difficult, but especially anything brand related and anything distribution related. And I don't think that for the most part, the founder that raises $15 million in year one to build a brand is the same founder that succeeds in building the brand. Uh, There are obviously some exceptions, but typically it's the gritty, you know, soup to nuts, uh, you know, Midwesterner or Southerner that doesn't have the connections, Mm -hmm. but has the will to learn. That's probably more equipped to build these brands than otherwise. It's it's why there's a lot of a lot of the large brands are actually focused in Columbus for that very reason. Granted, they have satellite offices in New York City. But a lot of retail happens in the Midwest because we don't have access to the same capital. We have to be a little bit more resourceful and it takes a little bit longer to do it, but it's more sustainable when it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, the direct the direct consumer space is dominated by, by a different subset of brand founder. Until recently. For five years, it was, hey, we're coming out of the gates with our seed round of five to seven million dollars, we're gonna raise a twenty million dollar series A. By the end of it, we're gonna raise anywhere between thirty and a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the way to equip your brand for long term success, which is why I think that the direct to consumer space has struggled because of it. Um I think that that's changing. The shift towards the desire for profitability and sustainability is changing not only how those founders are sort of reframing how they grow, but it's changing the founders that believe that they have a shot at doing the same thing. So it's bringing in a different class of person than what you saw maybe two to three years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, I like that. I think that's similar. It mirrors sort of a lot of what I've seen in sort of SaaS as well, where there are a lot of people that see Stripe and Slack and some of these uh companies sort of get to scale really quickly, not realizing that, that sort of like they think they got to scale really quickly, but, but the folks that built these companies were actually working on it for like three or four years before they even launched. Right. Um, and, and then ultimately they did, they do raise capital because they're quite good at doing that. And then three years later, they don't get to that scale that they thought. And then they, they find a, a, a sort of shiny new object. A friend of mine, Al, he started the, the Missouri Star quilt company, which is like the largest, uh, uh, manufacturer of quilts, I think in the world. Uh, and yeah, he, he says the same thing. He's like, look, like when you bootstrap a business, he bootstrapped it from, I don't think he's ever raised money for it. And they're almost at a hundred million ARR. Uh, it, it, he's just like, look, like when you, when you have to justify everything that you do and you can only grow as fast as you are growing, like there's no way to kind of hack your growth in that way. You have the time to learn about the nuances of every level of your business. And you're always 
you're always going to be capable at solving it. And I think that's the thing that the, the, the unforced errors that occur in, in venture finance companies, they're incredibly high because you're growing. When you go from 10 people to 100 people in your company in a year, which I see frequently, a lot of those you know companies might have worked if they went from 10 to 20 and then 20 to 40 and then 40 to 80, right. right? It's just, it's like what Mark Andreessen says. It's like baking a cake in three minutes. It's maybe possible. And when it is possible, you end up with a cake in three minutes, right? Uh, but you also end up with like a bunch of failures along the way. And that's great if you're sort of a, a, a VC, potentially you have sort of a portfolio of a bunch of these companies, sort of the whole bucket does does well on average, but the median is is a lot lower than the average, right? You have one winner, the Uber, that sort of like pays for all of these other other losses. And I think I think a lot of founders are getting are are getting aware of that and are building their companies differently and intentionally. And I think that's great. I think that's a great change uh, in in awareness and attitude. And I I think it's going to lead to a lot more companies long term that will be around. So, uh, and just to close on this, I know that you've mentioned that you are developing strategies to compete with Patreon. Uh, you know, Patreon now owns Memberful. 2PM's monetization platform is through Memberful. Uh, do, do you feel that you see yourselves moving, your, your company moving into the newsletter space or just the more frequent content space? Like, is that the strategy here? Or am, am I, are you on the precipice of something even bigger? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of these platforms are going are on the are still early, and so I think fast forward two three years, my guess is it's going to be more complex than just a newsletter. I think the community aspect is really interesting, um, but yeah, we're starting there. We're starting with getting slowly into the frequent content, the subscription space, and then we're going to move, you know, more into. Uh, into maybe the sort of a market as well with memberful, but we'll see, you know, we'll see where that goes. I think, I think my sort of abstract thought is, is startups are, are able to do a lot of stuff. Right. And when you see just, we, we can hire a bunch of engineers, we can build stuff, we can code, we can. And so often you see startups and then you see five years, 10 years later, like small, small, medium businesses, you know, able to do the same thing, right? You might have seen Starbucks do all these interesting things about loyalty and gift cards and tech. And then you saw basically because of Square and other things like every mom and pop shop able to compete on a, on, on that basis. And so I think that's what's going to happen in, in content is you'll see the best way to predict the future is to just see where it, you know, sort of where, where it already is. It's just not evenly distributed, right? And so seeing like what people are already doing, like you're starting to see what Nathan and Dan are doing at everything and that sort of they're going to build like a new media empire. Uh, they're probably probably going to leave Substack and build their own stuff and watching what they do. But my guess is you're going to there's going to be all sorts of stuff. They're probably going to be selling books. They're probably going to be doing courses. They're probably going to have the newsletter. Uh, you know, you might even look at the New York Times and see you know what they their strategy is. They kind of they have their own reporters write books too, right? And so um, might they do events, right? Events is probably going to be a large component of all this stuff that plays out over time as well. And so I think diversity of income is something that a lot of companies look for over time. Uh, and my guess is that creators, as they get more and more tools, hopefully a lot of those tools will be within Gumroad where they can do multiple sort of all of these things in one place. Um, but you're going to see creators sell merchandise, sell memberships, sell, you know, courses, do coaching, um, 
all sorts of stuff, you know, with, with Gumroad, with Cameo, with Superpeer, with um, all of these different services that are existing now. I think, I think you're going to, and, and, and ultimately you're going to see a massive consolidation, right? In five to 10 years, what often happens in these spaces is like the big ones are sort of the number one is, is 10 times bigger than the number two. And, and, and sort of that consolidation will start to, will start to happen. There might be a quote unquote, like a stripe of, of, of creator payments or something like that. That might be Patreon or somebody else that doesn't even exist right now that kind of comes in, owns the market and then sort of buys up all, a lot of these people and then builds that brand and that sort of destination site where people come uh, and is able to kind of like lower, it's kind of the aggregate theory, right? Like you're going to get all these people at a, it's going to be a lot easier to get distribution. Customer acquisition cost is going to be virtually zero and you're going to be able to offer all these, all these, all these services to these creators. I think you're starting to see that in Asia with a lot of what's happening with WeChat already. Uh, and I think the U S will get there eventually uh, with microtransactions and all, all sorts of stuff, but it's so early and it's so unpredictable, like with Libra and Facebook and, the app store debate and that 30% for, for digital content. Like there's so many things in flux that the whole creative industry is built upon. Like I think if tomorrow Apple changed their 30% to 15 or 5% made it more like Stripe, uh, the whole industry would rewrite itself in a year because it was sort of like a fundamental assumption that this industry is based on that would change. Right. Um, and so for me, it's just like, yeah, we, we, I can kind of predict a little bit of where Gummer is going with the education piece with memberships but who knows? Like, I think it's so unpredictable. And even, even just like the technology that we have access to, like, you know, Gumroad, if we wanted to do live streaming video classes three years ago, it would have been impossible. We would have had to hire three or four engineers. Now there's like a, an SDK that we could use and I could probably have something shipped in, in a few weeks. Right. And so it, it, it becomes like a, a brand game, a distribution game, a strategy game. It's not really just about getting the functionality out there. Uh, and I think that's tempting, tempting for me even to be like, oh, we can just ship these five things and like, we'll we'll be feature parity with Patreon or Substack and, and OnlyFans or whatever. But it's really, it's really about, about sort of these other sort of more soft skills almost of a startup. And, and that stuff takes a long time to develop. I don't think it's, I think that's why I'm, I, this new path is so appealing to me is like, yeah, you, you, you can't make a cake in three minutes if it, if it, you know, you just can't, it's physically impossible. Uh, and so I think of that with building a brand and, and, and sort of educating people on this new world. It's actually, I think, a, a competitive advantage to be okay growing slower because you can take your time. You can see how these industries are changing and you'll never sort of accrue that technical debt and all that culture debt uh, that you just can't get out of, right? Even if you stay profitable, like there's just so much, uh, so much uh, stuff that builds up so quickly. There's so many decisions that are being made that ultimately, if a lot of them are the wrong decision for the, for the future, you're going to spend half your time just like getting yourself out of the, that hole. And we've, we've seen that at Gumroad even. We're still working out of some of the holes that, you know, decisions that we made in 2013, 2014. Well, Sahil, I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch how you continue to build your platform around this evolving economy. And I think that you've presented some points that will be tremendously advantageous to the 2PM audience and specifically the Polymathic Forum. So I want to thank you for your time. And I look forward to continuing this conversation online and offline. Hopefully we can find new ways to work together. And if you ever need anything from me, just feel free to DM or holler. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much for, for having me on. It was great. My pleasure, man.